Amen. Okay, title of the message, What Are We Fighting For? Uh, there's several texts I could have gotten out of this, I, I, uh, for this, but I decided to pick First Chronicles 20, verse 1. It, the Bible says, and the kids are dismissed, they're going up to Children's Church. It says uh, in, in that First Chronicles 20, verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time that kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon, and came and besieged Rabbah. But... That's a very big, uh, um, I forgot what they call these words, connecting word. Um, any English teachers in here? Conjunction. Very big conjunction there. Thank you. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And Joab, his general, defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. So, uh, kind of a little bit of introduction, not much of a text, but we'll see if we can't make it uh, uh, applicable for us today. So when the people of Israel um, tired of the reign of the judges, they had been taken out of Egypt, uh, out of Egypt into the promised land. Uh, they basically God was their leader, but he raised up prophets and other people that would uh, help them through difficult times. It was called the reign of the judges. When they got tired of the judges, uh, they cried out to God for a king. And I think really what happened is they got tired of fighting. They wanted a standing army. They wanted somebody to do it for them, kind of like the church today. Got tired of doing the ministry. We want to pay somebody to do it for us. Anyway. When they got tired, they cried out to God for a king, and God gave them a man by the name of Saul to be their first ruler. Eventually, Saul abandoned his fidelity to God, and he was replaced by a man named David. The Bible says about David in Acts 13, 22, when he had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. David was a righteous man, a godly man, who was anointed by God to accomplish his will. He was not a perfect man, we'll find that out this morning, but he was a godly, a righteous man. And once David received the crown, he began the process of ridding the land of God's people, the land of the people of God, um, of the enemies that were coming against them. Now, first point we have here, I titled David's Fight. 1 Samuel 16, 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And here's the key. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, I want you to know, this isn't the topic for the day, but the Spirit of the Lord coming upon you, we call that anoint, the anointing of God. The anointing of God is not just for you to feel better about yourself. The anointing of God is always for a purpose. It's for you to be able to do something that God has called you and he's now equipping you to do. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me too to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to set the captives free, right? So David was anointed to do the work of a king, to do the work of ridding the land of the enemy in the land and building up the kingdom. So 2 Samuel 3.18, it says, Now then, do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So I put that in there for you to realize what God had anointed David to do, to save his people Israel from the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So the Spirit of God was upon David to fight. Right? Now, he was anointed to fight against the enemies of God, 
But what he will learn and what we will learn and see is that he was also anointed to do more than just fight against. He was also anointed to fight for. Okay, why do I say that? Because in our text, what we find is that after some time ruling as king, when David had subdued much of the land's enemies, when he had raised up people who were capable of fighting themselves, he no longer felt that he needed to be in the battle himself. Now, he personally stopped fighting, and what this text doesn't tell you, but if you were to go to first, I think 2 Samuel verse 11, what you'll find over there is that uh, he personally stopped fighting and his complacency in doing what God had called him to do led him to sin with Bathsheba, who happened to be one of his uh, uh, um, uh, mighty men that was actually his bodyguard. He was one of his mighty men's wife. He actually committed adultery with her while he was out fighting on behalf of the land because David was not in the fight. Sadly, the fight that was supposed to be without became a fight within. Instead of sacrificing himself for a righteous cause, he ended up indulging himself for an unrighteous one. He was out of the outward battle and ended up in an internal battle, an inward battle that led to adultery and murder and severe consequences for his life and also the life of his family uh, in the time to come. Now, thankfully, David was restored his, his sins were forgiven, and he got back in the fight for right. But now, uh, when God restored him back, he would be fighting for something more than just pushing back the enemy. He would not just be fighting against something, against the enemy. He was actually fighting for something. And I'll tell you that, what that is here in a minute. It was a fight that would carry beyond his life to the life of his ensuing generations that were to come, those of his house that would also reign in his stead. See, he found a purpose for his life that would warrant his focus and curtail his energies to accomplish the purpose for which he had been called. Fulfilling the purpose would curtail a self-serving lifestyle that caused strife, division, and brought evil and death to the surface and would lead to a self-sacrificing lifestyle that would bring life, healing, and wholeness to the people of God across the generations. What David found was not just a vision for the immediate. What he found was a vision that was multi-generational. It was a vision that would keep him in the fight and ultimately led to his long, fruitful reign in fulfilling it in his life and instilling it to his family to come. In 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 13, David had wanted to build a house for God. And God said to David, no, you're a man of warfare. You're a man of blood. I, I, it's a good thing that you wanted to build the temple of God and the house of God for me, but you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it. And God said to him, when your days are fulfilled, when you go, must go to be with your fathers, I will set up a seat, your seat after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Now, wait a minute. You said you, he's, God's given him a vision. Yes. The vision is for the house of God to be built. He wasn't going to do it, but God promised that one of his sons would do it. 
Why is that important? Because it says in 1 Chronicles 22, 5 through 6, David said, Solomon, my son, apparently he, he had said Solomon was going to be his king. Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So in other words, David said, my life from now on is going to be to invest in the, the life of my son and the vision that God has given me that he's going to carry up. You see, what happens is when we no longer have something to fight for, we oftentimes fall into sin. Because we become idle, we become self-indulgent, we have no longer something to sacrifice for. And so when we don't have anything to sacrifice for, we go on cruises, we go on vacations. There's nothing wrong with these things, but that becomes the goal of your life because you have nothing else to do. Sacrifice comes when you love someone and you have a purpose in life that is beyond you. Thank you. Who said that? I appreciate that. All right. We'll have to take you to lunch this week. <laughs> no, you missed out. Always one. There was only one. Someone was willing to get ahead and sacrifice. We want to reward that. <laughs> right? I, by the way, I'm not talking to anybody in this room. Only the people that are looking at the camera. Only the people that are watching from TV. Nobody in this room falls into this category. But the bottom line is, in the American culture, in the American church, not all churches, but a great deal of American churches, we become self-serving, we become self-indulgent, we become me, 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 me. You didn't take care of me. You didn't tell me. You didn't serve me. You didn't do this for me. And you know what? I was like that as well until I had kids. And then when I had kids, I began to realize, hey, life is more than just me. I've got to sacrifice for my children. Unfortunately, some of us, we never grow out of that. Even though you have kids, you think your kids are there to serve you. They're not. You see, <laughs> I told you I'm not the most cooth person there is, right? Uh, the Bible says, speak the truth. In love. I'm working on the love part. <laughs> All right? But I'm trying to tell the truth. So when we no longer have a vision beyond ourselves to serve, we start serving ourselves. David was given a vision beyond just getting rid of the enemies. He'd done a lot of that. He needed something more. Build a temple. Well, you're not going to be able to do it, but God promised him that his child would. And so David now began to sacrifice. That wasn't self-indulgent. Self-indulgent was when he no longer had a vision or a purpose because everything had already been conquered. But now he had a vision and a purpose, and now he had a reason to live, a reason to sacrifice, a reason to do and to live and to, and to, to continue on. And so he said, the, the temple that my son is going to build is going to be too much for him. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that his life is successful. It's so hard today to find people to teach Sunday school because they want to go to Sunday school. It's so hard to find people today to do ministry because they want to be ministered to. Right? Well, the problem is at some point, 
the vision outweighs the wants that I have. I was reminded of, of uh, there was a, Marco and Bethany used to be youth pastors here, and Bethany had a baby, and she had a really rough pregnant, uh, 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 delivery, and she was tired. It was the middle of the night. They gave her the baby. The baby's crying. She's used to be taken care of, and now there's nobody there to help her, and she's like struggling at that particular moment. She doesn't know what to do, and all of a sudden, something kicked in in her, and she looked at the baby, and she said, I will take care of you. In other words, it's not about me anymore. It's about you. And you see, for us to become all that God wants us to be, we've got to have the mind of Christ. We've got to have the attitude of Christ. Jesus did not come here for himself. Jesus came here to sacrifice himself. He lived a self-sacrificial life. For who? For us. That we would in turn, as he was sent into the world, so we would go into the world. What does that look like? We would be Christ to others. What does that look like? Not living for ourselves. Living for a greater purpose. Living for something that is beyond ourselves. Let's keep going. So we see that David's desire to build the temple, the desire that would be fulfilled through his son, garnered his attention and gave him purpose to bring the vision to pass. Then we're going to go and look at his son now. All right? So we're not going to continue, but we're going to look at his son and see what happened in his life that's going to correlate to what I'm talking to you right now. So the next point, I, I titled it Solomon's Fight. I really could have titled it something differently, but I'll see if I can't make it work, okay? 1 Kings 3, 11 through 14, God said to him, Solomon, because you've asked this thing, he asked for wisdom to be able to rule and reign, to accomplish what God, has, uh, God and his father had given him to do. He said, because you've asked for wisdom and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. And by the way, let me stop there. The Bible says you have not because you ask not, and when you ask, you ask amiss. See, Solomon wasn't asking for his benefit. He was asking for the benefit of God's people. And that's what God was saying. He said, you could have asked me for all these things. You could have asked me for long life. You could have asked me for abundant riches. You could have asked, but you didn't ask me for that. You asked me for wisdom to discern justice and to lead my people. And because you asked me for that, I'm going to give it to you. But verse 12, behold, I've done according to your words. He have given you a wise and... Uh, uh, oops, lost my place here. See, I've given you a, uh, where is it? There it is. What? This thing is not being, oh, here it is. I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I've also given you what, have you, not, what you have not asked for, riches and honor, so there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So Solomon was anointed with wisdom to build the kingdom of God and to construct the temple. 
God gave him that wisdom, and in it and through it, he immediately set out to do what he had been commissioned to do. In 1 Kings 5, 2 through 5, you know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoke to my father David saying, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build a house for my name. So once, so Solomon set out to do it and he did it. Once Solomon finished building the house of God, then Solomon continued to build in a different way, but we're going to say he continued to build. Why? And here's the key, because that's what he was anointed to do. Solomon was a builder. Listen to what I'm saying. But because he had finished the vision that was given to him by his dad, instead of building the kingdom, instead of building the kingdom, he began to satisfy his own lusts, and that self-centered lifestyle led to the construction or the building of idolatrous temples to the false gods of the nearby lands. See, you're going to use what God has given you for something. You're either going to use it to build something eternal, or you're going to use it to build something temporal. You're either going to use it to build something uh, significant and um, um, beneficial to others, or you're going to use it to build something beneficial to yourself. You're either going to build righteousness in your life and through your life, or you're going to build sinfulness in your life and through your life. And it all comes down to this, self-sacrifice, serving God, self-indulgence, serving myself. You hear what I'm saying? Solomon, the Bible says in 1 Kings 11, 4 through 8, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart against other gods. And by the way, Solomon didn't just have one wife or two wives, which king could have multiple wives. I think he said like 700 wives. Self-indulgent. Why? Because he lost his focus. He began to use all that he had on himself. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. That's an idol on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. So in the city of God, right next to the city of God, he built a temple for an idol, for an abomination, and also for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And in this temple of Molech, that's where they sacrificed their children to that idol. It's amazing to me how many Christians today are actually standing for the sacrificing of children to Baal and Moloch through abortion because they forgot who God was. They forgot that they're supposed to be building righteousness and justice in the land. They forgot that they're not just living for themselves, but they're living for something greater than themselves. They're living for the next generation. But if you kill the next generation... 
And the Bible says Solomon did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. I know I titled this Solomon's fight, but fight is a metaphor for the purpose that God has given to him. Solomon was anointed by God to build. In Solomon's case, when he stopped biting, uh, fighting or when he stopped building the temple, he kept building because that was what, that's what he was anointed to do. Instead of a self-sacrificing lifestyle, he developed a self-serving one. Instead of serving God by building the kingdom, he began to serve himself and build the idolatrous structures that would end up bringing judgment upon the land and dividing and eventually destroying the nation. Like David, like Solomon, we must realize that we are all anointed to do something. That anointing is a supernatural grace that equips us to build. It equips us to fight against whatever obstacles that would want to prevent the purposes of God from being accomplished in us and through us, in our families and through our families. To do the will of God, we must embrace the purposes of God, denying our wants and desires and taking up His and living to accomplish His, which are eternal in purpose. It is a life of self-sacrifice. Listen, I'm, I'm not going to give you a gospel that is indulgent to your wants and your needs. I'm not going to tell you that, hey, just come to Jesus and your life doesn't have to change. That is a bunch of, in the words of our uh, uh, resident uh, 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 leader, that is a bunch of malarkey. Jesus said, he that would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, Follow after me. We're to become like Christ. What did Jesus do? Not my will, but thy will be done. And if thy will is for me to go to a cross, then to the cross I shall go. Reminds me of that hymn that used to be very popular in the church. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, where the burdens of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Where is the cross? We look at the cross as a symbol of victory, and it is. But the cross is first and foremost a symbol of death. And not any death, but the death of a criminal, the death of a of someone that was being a public enemy of the, of the government that was in charge. It was a humiliating death. But the good news is no one took his life. He laid his life down of his own accord. Why? Because he that knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Are you hearing what I'm saying? To do the will of God... We must embrace the purposes of God, denying our wants and desires to accomplish His. It is a life of self-sacrifice. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after Me. I already shared that with you. Matthew 19, 27 through 30, Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has, listen, left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake 
you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. It's going to cost you to follow Jesus. But he always rewards those who follow. For those of you that have left these things, you shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We can't forget that this life is a life of sacrifice. Listen, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they were delivered from their captivity. Their enemy was defeated at the Red Sea. And they came out of Egypt, and God's purpose was to lead them into the promised land. He gave them a knowledge of his ways. When Moses gave the law, it wasn't just, hey, you need to do this or else. It was he was showing them who he was, what kind of person he was, how to live in his sight. Now, the problem is, when they came out of Egypt, they brought Egypt with them. And what we find in the wilderness is they continually fell into the trap of, we're gr- we, they didn't ever say we're grateful. They said, we know you did this for us yesterday. What have you done for us lately? How are you taking care of me? How are you doing what I want? How are you feeding me? How are you giving me this? How are you meeting my needs? What have you done for me? And it was always when they fell into that, they fell into grumbling and complaining. And when they fell into grumbling and complaining, it released the enemy's uh, 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 attack and launch into their life. And as a church, we need to be careful not to fall into this, what have you done for me lately? We can be snarky. That's a new word I learned this week. We can be uh, uh, sneaky about it, but if you go to the underlying attitude is, what have you done for me lately? And I like what they said many, many years ago whenever the United States was attacked. It says, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Stop asking what the church can do for you and start asking what you can do for the church. Stop asking what kingdom, the kingdom can do for you, and we need to get to a place where we say, God, what can I do for you? If we don't have a purpose to live for, to sacrifice ourselves for, we turn inward and become self-indulgent, and that kind of lifestyle leads to pain, division, judge, division judgment, and ultimately death. In short, we will either fight with God to bring his will to pass, and I'm talking about on the side of God, or we will fight against, against God, against the purposes of God to bring our own desires to pass. My point is, either way, we're going to fight. Because you were called to fight. You were anointed to do something. You're either going to use it for God, with God, or you're going to use it against God for yourself. Listen to what I'm telling you. So it brings us to our third point. Now, this would be a good place to say a little uh, by faith, a little declaration by faith, Pastor, we still love you. No, just kidding. Let's go on. We'll take up stones later. Third point, our fight. We looked at David's fight. We looked at Solomon's fight. Now let's look at our fight. 
1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Who is he writing to? The church. Happens to be the church at Corinth. And what is he telling them? I couldn't talk to you like spiritual people. I had to talk to you like carnal babies in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive solid food. And even now, you're still not able. For you're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? In other words, God's called you to live life more than just being a mere man. For when one says, I am of Paul, or another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Living life with factions and divisions. When we are not where we are supposed to be and doing what we're supposed to do, then like David, remember him, we looked at him first, we will find ourselves pursuing our own sinful passions and pleasures. Instead of fighting against the enemy of our souls, we end up fighting for the furtherance of our own self-interest. Selfishness causes fights within and furthers the cause of the enemy. Selflessness causes us to unify and fight against the enemy for the purposes of God. We cannot afford to lose our focus to minimize our vision for what God has called us and equipped us to do. We are not just called to exist. We have a church. We have a building. We exist. Let me give you the history of this church. I think in the 60s, uh, they began to uh, start a church here, and the church began to grow. They had that little building they built out there, and the church was outgrowing the building. And so they anticipated they needed a bigger building, but they were anticipating that when they built this bigger building, it wouldn't be long for this building to be full. They were just continuing to grow, continuing to grow, continuing to grow. So they had a vision to do the work of God here and to build a bigger building. They built this bigger building, and when they got into this building, the vision, the work stopped. Why? Because they fulfilled the vision, and they didn't pick up another vision. And then there was many, many years of strife and division and splitting and, and dealing with the problems of the sheep who were not having a pasture to go out and, and, and to deal with. And so they started fighting and biting themselves. Well, let's get another pastor. The problem is you get another pastor, you're still dealing with the same problems. The church is still living for themselves. Thank you, Paul. I miss you. I hope, <laughs> I hope that's contagious. We are not called to just exist. We're not called to just go to church and wait for the rapture to get us out of here. You are called to change the world. You say, well, I can't change the world. You're called to change your world. Remind me of that little boy that there was a storm that blew in, and when the storm blew in, it washed all the starfish up on the, on the seashore. And, and so he just started in his naivety, and I say that in quotation marks, he started going out and picking up a starfish and throwing it in. There were multitudes of starfish, and an old man comes along, and he says, oh, don't even bother doing that. You're not making a difference. Thankfully, the boy had not yet been infected by that uh, 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 attitude, and he looked at the old man, and he picked up the starfish, and he said, but it'll make a difference to this one. And he threw it back in the seashore. Your life was created by God on purpose, for a purpose. 
and you can make a difference. No, you may not be able to change the world, but you can change your world. You can change the life of your family. You can change the life of the succeeding generations to come if you stop living for yourself and start living for God. Stop being self-indulgent and start, self, start sacrificing yourself for a greater cause and a greater vision. What is living for yourself got you? Pain? Rehab? Distance yourself from your family? Nobody wants to hang around you? What has living for yourself got you? There's a better way. We are not called and anointed just to go to church and hold on to our salvation until we die. That makes for a good death, but it doesn't make for a good life. We make, uh, there was a, a, a nice, uh, there's, I'll tell you two of them. There's two sayings that I saw on a, on a picture frame. One is, uh, faith doesn't make things easier, it makes things possible. But the one that I really like is this. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. We actually have a purpose for our lives here on this planet. Ephesians 2.10, the Bible says, We all know that 2.8.9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Hallelujah, thank you God, I'm saved. It's so awesome. But we don't know Ephesians 2.10. Tells us our purpose. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. You are created in Christ when you're born again. You're a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. For good works. Which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's our choice. We don't have to. Many of us don't. We convince ourselves that what we do is God's will for our life. But I learned a long time ago because I used to do the same. Yeah, doing what I think is God's will and doing God's will are not always the same. We are called to work for God. We are anointed to build the kingdom as we fight to bring the purposes of God to fruition in us and through us. Matthew 6.10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. David found a reason to keep on and it fueled his passion and his purpose in life. For too long, the church has been hampered and defeated by its lack of vision for the future. We bought into this uh, uh, lie that says, well, the earth is going to be uh, uh, destroyed anyway, so let's just wait for Jesus to come back and deliver us from our uh, uh, affliction, deliver us from the, the sinfulness that's so rampant around us, not realizing that the way God intended to deal with the sinfulness and the darknesses in the world was by putting lights in there. But what we've done is we've gone into the church and put a basket or bushel over our, our lights and so there's no light in the world and then we complain that the, the world is dark. Not realizing that God intended us for, for us to remove the bushel, to remove the basket, to get out from underneath the building and get out there and make a difference in the schools, make a difference in the plants, make a difference in the, in the cities and the country around us, make a difference in life. But you're not going to make a difference by living a self-indulgent lifestyle. You'll make a difference by living a godly, self-sacrificing lifestyle. 
Once we are saved and established personally, we often sit back and relax. And sadly, like David, like Solomon, we find ourselves buried in the mire of self-indulgent passions that bring division and destruction into our lives, our families, as well as the church. It's only when we discover the vision for the kingdom, the vision for what God is building in us and through us that will not stop with us. There is another generation that's coming that needs you. They need to know what it's like to live for God. Our life isn't over because we've gotten old. We just have to refocus on the next generation. We don't stop living because we retired from the plants. We oftentimes just start living when we retire from the plants. It's this purpose that fuels the sacrificial lifestyle that is needed to fight against the enemy. There is an enemy. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the walls of the devil. Too often we come to church without our armor. We live our lives without our armor. Not realizing that we're not called to just be spectators. We're called to fight. I feel like I'm preaching to the wrong people this morning. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the walls of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Why do we keep wrestling against flesh and blood? Because we don't know who our true enemy is. But we wrestle against powers, principalities, rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, we're going to fight. If we don't fight the true enemy, we're going to fight one another. So it's this purpose that fuels the sacrificial lifestyle needed to fight against the enemy. I gave you a scripture for that. And it's also needed for the establishment of something eternal in its scope. You see, Jesus commissioned the church to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to all the world. He anointed us with power to do so. Nothing less is expected than to accomplish what he has sent us to do. When threatened by the ruling council of Jerusalem to stop doing the work, the apostles who had been called to proclaim the gospel, they got together with the church and they said this in Acts 4, 29-31. Let me just paraphrase. They said, uh, we don't think it's God's will for us to suffer, so we're going to stop preaching. Um, we already have a church, and you know, there's plenty of people in the church, so we're going to stop preaching. We need to stop going out and preaching the gospel. And what we need to do is we need to build a, a more elaborate structure to house what we already have. That's actually not what they said. In Acts 4, 29 through 31, it says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to us, your servants, that with all boldness we may speak your word. What was getting them in trouble? Speaking the word. What did they threaten them to not do? Speak the word. What did they ask God to do? Give us boldness to do that, which they're telling us not to do, but which we need to do, and gets us in a whole lot of trouble. God, we need boldness because we determined to keep on doing it. He said, 
Grant us boldness that they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And you may be asking yourself, why isn't God shaking the church like he used to? Because I still think we're asking for the wrong things. We're asking out of self-indulgence. We're asking for our own benefit. We're not asking for the benefit of the lost. We're not asking for the heart of God's people. We're not asking for the benefit of those that don't know God. We're not asking, Lord, whatever it costs me, I'm going to do your will. We're not asking like that. But I believe when we find the heart of God, when we find uh, uh, God's heart and passion and we get into line with God's will for our lives, I believe we're going to ask. And when we ask, God's going to say, now that's a prayer I want to answer. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God doesn't meet your needs and if you need have a need, God won't meet it and God won't heal you and God won't provide for you. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying is that we need to get to a place where we stop asking what we want and start asking for what He wants. But in order to have what He wants, it means we're going to have to die oftentimes to what we want. But there's no greater life to live than to live for something more than a life that is temporal more for than, than just the immediate. There's no greater life and no greater satisfaction for a Christian than to know that your life is going to make a difference, not just because of you and your, what you're doing, but it's going to outlive what you're doing because you're living for the kingdom. You're living beyond yourself for the generations that are to come. May we so embrace his purpose that like the apostles, like the first century church, nothing will stop us from fighting to fulfill it. That we can say, like Jesus, I'd rather not do this, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done.